Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Well, season one, episode 14 of Systematic Theology. <laughs> the subject, Satanology, which is a division of angelology, and I'd like to welcome all of you watching online, listening on the podcast, and those who are in their physical bodies in this physical room. We're glad to have you all, so welcome. Uh, let's start with prayer. Lord Most High, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, we worship you, we serve you, we honor you. And Lord, tonight we want to give you glory even as we talk about your enemy, the devil. We don't want him to get the glory. We don't want our focus to be on him even though we'll be talking about him. We just want to make sure that we are still Christ-centered, that Jesus Christ is magnified, that I'm spirit-filled as I teach and each of us are spirit-filled as we hear and listen and learn from your word. So, Lord, we ask you, you to be lifted up tonight, you to be glorified, for you to fill our thoughts even as we talk about the devil. And it's in the triumphant name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, fortunately, tonight we start with a comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes, uh, page 78. And I guess, since I'm the one with the microphone, I'll be both. I'll be both. So, for those who listen on the podcast, we have little Calvin and and his tiger hobs, and they're crossing a river, hopping on rocks. And Calvin says, as he hops from one rock to the other, do you believe in the devil? You know, a supreme evil being dedicated to the temptation, corruption, and destruction of man. Calvin stops on the rock and waits for, for Hobbes to answer, and Hobbes stops on his rock and says, I'm not sure man needs the help. <laughs> and Calvin says, you just can't talk to animals about these things. So there's good theology here, and really the question is two things. One, we see the sinfulness of man, but we really did need the devil's help to get into sin in the first place, but to keep on sinning, we often don't need his help. But the first part of the cartoon, do you believe in the devil, a supreme evil being dedicated to temptation, corruption, and destruction of man? Well, he's an evil being. I don't know how supreme he is. And he certainly is used to tempt us and corrupt us. So let's find out why we believe in him. But again, we don't give him the glory. We give Christ the glory. So page 79 in your notes. Satanology is a division of angelology, since Satan is an angel that we'll see. And we're only going to cover two pages tonight. And we'll look up quite a few of these verses. Number one, Roman number one, common errors people make about Satan. So one of the common errors people make, number one, is ignoring Satan and his demons. Ignoring Satan and his demons. And that certainly would be true of the unbelieving world who might scoff and make fun. Um, it's like the two little boys that were talking, and the one little boy said to the other little boy, do you believe there's a real devil? And the second little boy said, oh, no, he's like Santa Claus. He's your old man. <laughs> so... I don't know if you get it, but yeah, and, and, and indicating that, you know, he's not a real person. Well, your old man isn't the devil. There really is a devil. He's a real creature, and ignoring him is not a healthy thing to do, or his demons. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. 
2 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. First Corinthians is a great book, but not the one I want to read from. Second Corinthians 2.10, here we go. Apostle Paul's talking about a situation with someone in the church in Corinth who had fallen into sin and repented. And he's talking about that situation. He says in verse 10, But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. So if you forgave him, I forgive him. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So here, he's referring to the devil, and he says we're not ignorant of his schemes. So that implies that you can be ignorant of his schemes. Some people are ignorant of his schemes, and I would suggest that most unbelievers probably are ignorant, but also many Christians are ignorant of the devil's schemes. And we'll be talking a little bit about this in the Sunday sermon, it just happens to coincide with what we're studying here. But I'm just surprised, and you hear this in the sermon, but I'll give it to you now. I'm surprised that so many Christians are surprised that the world is as bad as it is. And that's a misunderstanding of the devil and his schemes and being ignorant that he's out to get us. And we don't want to be ignorant of his schemes. And in this case, it has to do with forgiveness of other believers and believers not willing to forgive someone else. And one of his schemes, apparently, is to get us to be ungracious, unforgiving, unmerciful Christians, even toward other Christians who have messed up. And you have found, like I have, that it's easy for us to condemn the sins of others when we don't have that sin. But when we have the same sin, it's easy for us to condone it. And go, oh, no, everybody does that. You know, it's okay. And we condone it. And those are schemes of the devil. So we don't want to be ignorant of him and his schemes. Also, we see in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is also writing there to another church, a church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So, again, he's scheming against you, and you don't want to be ignorant of those schemes. And 1 Peter 5.8 tells us also about the devil, what he's doing. And in 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be of sober spirit, be self-controlled, be on the alert. Be awake. Be aware of what's going on. Why? Because, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So if you've ever been in the bush in Africa, you want to be aware that there are lions out there and they're waiting to devour you. And that's why our world is like it is. We don't want to be ignorant of Satan. You don't want to be ignorant of lions. If you're in the, in the bush in Africa, you don't want to be ignorant of Satan in our world because he's seeking to devour you. So one common error is to ignore him, and he wants people to ignore him. He want, wants people to think that he's a fable, a fantasy, he's like Santa Claus. But there's another extreme, number two, fearing Satan and his demons. Fearing Satan and his demons. And... I'm referring to the believer. The unbeliever certainly should be afraid. 
but the believer doesn't need to be afraid of the devil, and we're going to find out why a little bit later. Now, if you're an unbeliever, yeah, you should be afraid of him. Notice Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. So this is Jesus' incarnation. He took on human flesh to be like us. That through death, notice, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. And if you don't know who it is, he says that is the devil. He's been rendered powerless. And you go, well, it still seems like he has a lot of power. Well, yes and no. Depends on the situation, depends on who you are, depends on whether you're in Christ or not. So if you're in Christ, we're going to see that he is powerless against you, unless you give him power. The only power that the devil has against you as a believer is the power you give him by being afraid of him, by being ignorant of him, by believing his lies. But Christ defeated the devil on the cross. Notice 1 Peter um, 5, 8, but this time also verse 9. We looked at verse 8 already, that he's like a lion seeking to devour you in 1 Peter 5, 8. But then it says, doesn't say be afraid of him that he's seeking to devour you. He says in verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the scripture tells us as believers, it doesn't tell us to be afraid of him. It says to resist him. Resist him. And then also 1 John 4 which is a good verse to memorize, or at least know where it is, if you can't memorize it word for word. This one is very powerful to show you what you have in Christ. 1 John chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Why do you test the spirits? Well, because as we're going to see when we get to demonology next week, not every spirit is a good spirit. There are evil spirits. And so just because someone says, ooh, I'm spiritual, well, it's like, yeah, well, what kind of spirit do you have? (laughs) You know, just being spiritual doesn't mean it's a good thing. It could be a very bad thing if you have a demonic spirit. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So some spirits are not from God. They're from the devil. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And keep in mind, when the Bible talks about a false prophet, the reason he has to warn you about false prophets is they look like real prophets. False prophets don't come in with a little name tag that says false prophet. Beware. You know, they look like a real prophet. So when people go, I can't believe that person, you know, turned out to be this. Well, of course, they were a counterfeit. They didn't announce themselves ahead of time. So he says, by this, you know, the spirit of God. How do you know if it's the the right spirit? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So in this context, in this specific situation, they had an issue and he mentions what the issue is. And the issue was there were prophets saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Well, he goes, well, that's, that's a false prophet. Now, is that the only indication of a false prophet? No. But in this situation, this was the indication that they were dealing with, that false prophets were saying Jesus did not come in the flesh. 
And then he says, and here's the verse you want to get to, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. So you've overcome this spirit of Antichrist, because greater is he, that's Jesus, who is in you than he, the devil, who is in the world. So Jesus trumps the devil. And we're going to see in a moment, but it's worth saying more than once. We have to remember that the devil is a creature, so he is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. And for some reason, we get this idea in our mind, maybe it comes from, from cartoons or the news or movies or whatever, I don't know, that Satan is God's counterpart, but he's evil. So God can do all this, and it's good. Satan does all this, and it's evil. That's absolutely not true. God is the only God, and Satan is a creature, and he's limited in everything he does. And so he's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He can't be everywhere at once. Um, he's not the evil counterpart of God. He's evil. He's the enemy of God, but he's not equal to God, only evil. Does that make sense? And so it says here, greater is he, Christ, who is in you than he is in the world. So if you are a spirit-filled Christian, you don't need to worry about the devil. You don't need to be afraid of him. You shouldn't be ignorant of him, but you don't have to be afraid of him. You don't have to be shuddering all the time. Oh, what was that? You know, or something like that. Because when you choose to be afraid of the devil, when you choose to believe his lies, you are personally giving him power over you. And that's often why, perhaps, that um, demons show up in a way that is very frightening. Because then they have control over you because you're afraid of them. But in Christ, you have power over them. But we'll get to that in demonology. So ignoring Satan is one common error. Second one is fearing Satan and his demons, and that's if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, yeah, you have a lot to be afraid of. And number three, arrogance towards Satan and his demons. Arrogance towards Satan and his demons. This might be a, a common one sometimes you see among uh, certain groups of Christians, just being kind of arrogant about Satan and his demons, not taking them serious enough. For example, in Luke chapter 10, we have Jesus has just sent out a group of 70 disciples. Some texts say 72 disciples. Uh, he sends out these 70 disciples. And in Luke 10, verse 17, it says, verse 17, And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they're pretty excited about the fact that they've been able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That probably is his first fall from heaven um, when he was cast out of heaven when he sinned. Some people think it's a future event that could happen in the future when he's, he's cast out of uh, the heavens, um, not the throne room of God, but, but the space area and, and thrown out. Um, so we don't know if it's past or future. I tend to think it's his past being thrown out of, of the heavens. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. So he's saying, I've given you power over the enemy, over demons. In Jesus Christ, you have the power. In your own flesh, you don't, but in Jesus. But he says, even though you have power over these demons, nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There's a warning about becoming too arrogant in front of the demons and Satan. Um, and so he says, just don't be arrogant about it. 
They are still our enemy. They still are powerful. They still do things to try to harm us. Um, okay, and then Jude. Uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, so we'll just look at Jude, verse 9. It's the book right before the book of Revelation. And this is a very interesting passage in Jude 9. In fact, the whole book is pretty interesting about angels and things. But verse 9 says, but Michael, the archangel. So archangel is one of the highest angels that we have here. Uh, might be equivalent to Satan, or maybe Satan was higher than him. Not really sure. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here's Michael who at this point is higher than you and I are because we are temporarily lower than the angels. Someday we'll be higher than the angels. We were created to be higher, but because of sin, we're lower. So here's Michael who has more authority than you and I do. And when he's talking to the devil, he doesn't personally rebuke the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And so I would say when you hear Christians going, saying, I rebuke you, Satan. It's like, ooh. You know, there, there's no biblical precedent for doing that. In fact, there's a biblical precedent for not doing that. I'd rather say, the Lord rebuke you. <laughs> um, there's something about being too arrogant in the face of our enemy that's a dangerous thing. And then we have this humorous story in Acts 19, which is really about the demons. But since the passage is there and since it's humorous, let's go ahead and look at it. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 17. Acts 19, verse 11, and the book of Acts is dealing with the early church and what was going on at that time. And it says in Acts 19, 11, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, I like that, extraordinary miracles. Like there's ordinary miracles and there's extraordinary miracles. You know, I'd settle for some ordinary miracles in my life. But here are extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Well, that's pretty amazing. You have Paul's hanky, and a demon comes out of you. Those, that's an extraordinary miracle. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued both of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. If you're an unbeliever, you don't have victory over the demons. You don't have a greater he who is in you than he who is in the world. You just have yourself. And so here you have a case where these arrogant unbelievers became subject to the power of these demons because they were arrogant, but also being unbelievers, they didn't have Jesus Christ. Also, they were trying to employ a formula. And we're going to see when we get to demonology, but I'll mention here as well, that to cast out a demon is not a magic formula. So many people want to know the magic formula to cast out demons. The power in casting out a demon has nothing to do with the formula. It has to do with the, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one who casts out the demons. And that's why... The scriptures do not give us a formula for casting out demons. Why? Because then we would rely on the formula. If you say this incantation, you spin around three times, you dingle this bell, and you do this. Well, that's not what it's about. It's about the power of Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that a little bit more when we get to demonology. So, we don't want to ignore Satan. We don't want to fear Satan inappropriately. 
We don't want to be arrogant against him, though. We don't want to become cocky. Uh, fourthly, another error people make is believing that everything that is spiritual is from God. Believing that everything that is spiritual is from God. And we talked about that just a moment ago in, in one context, but let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. And we'll see that both Christians and non-Christians fall into this problem, this error, quite a bit. That believing that everything that's spiritual is from God. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. Paul is rebuking this rather carnally-minded church in the city of Corinth, Greece. And he says, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. So he goes, you just, you just accept things that other people teach, and it's wrong. And notice what he says then, skipping down to verse 13. For such men are false prophets. And like I said, false prophets don't announce themselves as false prophets. They are deceitful workers. They deceive you. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Again, they don't announce themselves as heretics. And he says, and no wonder, and here's the verse you want to camp on for a moment, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So when Satan shows up, he may show up in a form that's going to frighten you and scare you, but more likely he's going to show up in a form that is beautiful and wonderful as an angel of light, a good angel, something good. And people who have had, you know, you hear about these near-death experiences that people died and things like that, they're not believers, and they have this near-death experience, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's great, and it's like, well, I'm not convinced they're near-death experiences because how come all, none of these people go to hell? I mean, that seems kind of odd to me. You know, they all seem to go to heaven no matter who they are and see the light. But Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. And so if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus and you have a near-death experience and you see heaven and think you see heaven, but you're being deceived, then you're going to think you don't need Jesus. Like, well, I don't need Jesus. I was going to go to heaven anyways. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So we have to be careful. We have to be discerning on what is from the Lord and what is not. Uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 10. This is talking about the, the last days, and it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only the one who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. We saw this in another context. This is probably a reference to the Holy Spirit and that the Antichrist is being held at bay even though his spirit is here, even though he's working um, around us. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. But the actual Antichrist is being held at bay by the Holy Spirit who will be removed with the church. His, his, his residence is removed. He's omnipresent, but his actually residence in us is removed at the rapture. And then when that happens, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with his, the breath of his mouth and bring to end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So this is the Antichrist. Satan gives him power. 
with all power and signs and false wonders. So Antichrist comes, and he can do all these amazing miracles. Why? Well, he's an Antichrist. He does things like Christ did, but he doesn't do them in the power of the Holy Spirit. He does them in the power of the devil. And verse 10, And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So we see here that not everything spiritual is of the Lord, and in the last days the Antichrist will do these amazing things, and people will think he's the Messiah because he does all these miracles and wonders, and they will be deceived, and they will not be saved, even though they are very spiritual people and may have actually seen demons come out or been healed and seen other miracles. They are not saved because the power is not from the power of Christ. It is from the power of the devil. So looking at your notes, let me read this. Remember, Satan is a liar and a counterfeiter. Satan even spreads lies about himself. He wants people to believe he's not real, or if real, has no significant power. Or he wants people to believe he has more power than he actually does have. So I'm not saying he's not powerful, but you have to realize he doesn't have power over you unless you give it to him as a believer, but you have to respect him because he can really mess with you. Number two, what Satan cannot do to the Christian. So let's find out what he can't do. Let's find out what he can do. Let's see what powers he has. He can't nullify our salvation. He can't nullify or cancel, if you like that word better. He can't cancel or nullify our salvation. There's an amazing passage in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. There are some groups, some churches, some people, some theologians, some seminaries that teach you can lose your salvation. I believe that's completely false, and when we get to soteriology, you will see that if you believe you can lose salvation, then you don't really understand what salvation is as presented in Scripture, and we'll go through those passages. You have to redefine salvation if you think you can lose it, but if you think you can lose it, let me ask you, don't answer out loud, but what sin would cause you to lose your salvation? Well, the sin that we usually say would cause you to lose salvation is a sin that maybe you and I wouldn't commit because we think it's somebody else who could lose it, not us. Well, look at this sin. Here's a young man who has committed in incest. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So here's a young man, and he's sleeping with, it's either his mother or his stepmother, and we conjecture that it's his stepmother because it doesn't say he's sleeping with his mom, he's sleeping with his father's wife, so maybe it's his stepmom. But either way, it's incest. And Paul says, this immorality among you, the, the pagans don't even do this kind of immorality. Like, you're worse. And you become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I and my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has no has so committed this as though I were present. Sometimes people say as Christians you shouldn't judge other people. Well, that's wrong. That's not true. Um, you should not judge other people's motives. We can't judge your heart. You can't judge your motives. We don't know why you go to church or, or why you give money or why you help the poor. I'm not supposed to judge that. But when you commit an actual act of sin that the Bible says is sin, we are to judge that. We are to point to our brother that this is sin. This is wrong. And so Paul says you should judge him. You know this is wrong. doesn't matter what's his in heart in this case. The case is his actions are wrong. And he says, so... I've already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, under his authority, his character, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan 
for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he says, you should kick him out of the church. If he's not repentant of his sin, you should get him out of here. He's going to destroy himself physically. Let Satan have him. But guess what? Satan doesn't get his soul. His spirit will still be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I don't know what sin you can think you can do to lose salvation, but obviously incest isn't it. Because this young man has committed it. He hasn't lost his salvation, but he's thrown away his life, Paul says, and delivered him over to the devil for this life, not for the next life. And Paul makes that very clear. So he can't nullify your salvation, and that's a beautiful thing. A second thing he can't do, number two, he can't make us do things or do something we refuse to do. He can't make you do something you refuse to do. I didn't have a choice. The devil made me do it. Not true. Might be true if you're an unbeliever, but not true if you are a believer. We already looked at 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, so let's look at James chapter 4, verse 7. James chapter 4, verse 7. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God. That's the first step. Second step, resist the devil. And what will happen? He will flee from you. Now, don't try to resist the devil in your own power, but resist him in the power of the Lord. Submit your will, your life, your heart, yourself to God. And he says, when you're submitted to the Lord, you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because he can't get to you. He has no power over you when you have the power of Christ living in and through you as a spirit-filled believer. Now, if you're a carnal believer, then you're giving the devil power over you. If you're listening to the devil, believing his lies, you're giving him power over you. When you start playing with a Ouija board, you're giving him power over you. When you start reading the horoscope, you're giving him power over you. When you start going to seance, you're giving him power over you. When you believe his lies, when he says, you're no good, you can't be forgiven of this, you're dirty, no one loves you, those are his lies, you're giving him power over you. So we all should look at our lives and say, what lies am I believing? And I would suggest you go to the Lord and do it in prayer because he can show you what lies you are believing. And say, Lord, what lies am I believing and what, I'm the what is the truth? And let the Lord speak to you. Because we believe these lies and we say them over and over again. And that gives the devil power over us because we gave him the power. You'll never be good at this. You'll never accomplish this. No one will ever love you. Whatever it is, we believe the lies and that gives him power. But if we submit to God, and we resist the devil's lives, lies, he will flee from us. So we can't nullify our salvation. He can't make us do something that we don't want to do. Um, and thirdly, he can't, and I use two words here, he can't touch you or overcome us, touch or overcome us. And this is in 1 John 5, 18. Let me read the verse, and then let me tell you what I think this means. 1 John 5.18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, and the idea there is probably habitually sins and the same sin, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And so the part of the verse we want to focus on is the evil one does not touch him. And one understanding of that word is he doesn't overcome you. What does that mean? I don't really know, but I know it's good. <laughs> I 
I don't fully know what it means. Um, but I know it, it's good. It's like there's something that we are protected from the devil because we have the Lord. It's a protection that we have. There are certain things that he can't do to us because we are believers. It's like a safe zone that we have. Uh, sometimes ask, people ask the question, well, can Satan or demons possess a believer? And you hear that. And, and the problem with the question is the question is, is poorly worded, using the word possess. The New Testament never uses the word possess for demonization. In fact, that's the word it uses is demonization or demonized. It's a Greek word, and it just takes the word demon, and he says you're demonized. So can a believer be demonized? Well, yeah, we can be demonized. Demons can, can get at us. They can influence. Do they possess us? Do they own us? No, they don't own us. And Jesus owns us. But Christians can be demonized. They can be affected by demons. They can be affected by Satan. But only if we give them opportunity. Because this verse says she can't touch you. But if you say, touch me, if you say, I want to be involved in like the things I mentioned, Ouija boards and seances, and, and we are not spirit-filled, then we should be fearful of what he could do to us because we've let him into our lives. But otherwise, he can't touch us. But what can he do? Well, here's what he can do. He can tempt us to sin in various ways. He can tempt us to sin. In, he tempts us. He can't make us sin, but he can tempt us to sin in various ways. In Matthew 4, 1, we won't look up the references for sake of time, but Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he's tempted by the devil. He can tempt us. He tempted Jesus. Um, and then he can tempt us to speak against God's will. He can tempt us to speak against God's will. In Matthew 16, Peter has just told Jesus that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yeah, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 none of this crucifixion stuff. <laughs> and, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you're not after the will of God. You're after Satan's will. So Satan can get us to speak against God's will. He can influence to speak against God's will. He influenced Peter to speak against God's will. He can tempt us to lie. He can tempt us to lie. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira, they had an extra house, they sold it, they gave money to the church, they lied about how much money they gave because they gave because they wanted to look really generous, but they wanted to keep some of the money for themselves. And they lied about what they gave. And Peter says to them, <clears throat> well, let's just see what he says. I want to quote him accurate. Acts chapter 5, 3, he says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back some of the price of the land. So Satan had influenced them to lie. He can tempt us to lie. You can say no. We already saw that you can resist the devil. You don't have to give in to him. But the fact that if you don't submit to God, then you can find yourself being tempted and doing what the devil is telling you to do. He can't make you lie. He can't make you speak against God's will. He can't make you sin, but he certainly can tempt you to do those things, and you do them. It's just like a person can tempt you to sin. They don't make you sin, but they tempt you. Oh, come on, nobody will know. Okay, you know, oh, come on, it's okay. Oh, just this once. They're tempting you to sin, but you are the one who sins. He also can tempt us to slander others, to slander others. Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, it's giving a, a list of qualities, and he's been talking about qualities for men in leadership, and now he's talking about women who are in leadership. And he says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but demonstrate, uh, but temperate, faithful in all things. And that word malicious gossip is a Greek word. There's one Greek word for the night. I'll write it in Greek, and then I'll tell you what it says. It says, diabolos. Looks a lot like the Spanish word for devil. Sounds like our word for devil. It actually is the Greek word for that we translate as devil in English. It's the same word. So the devil is the diabolos, the, the slanderer, the malicious gossiper. And so when you read in the Greek, to know if they're talking about the devil or talking about a malicious gossip, you or me, you can only tell by context because it's the same word. And, of course, this isn't only used of women as malicious gossips. Uh, we could look at 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. It's also used of men. 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. It's talking, uh, verse 2 says, Men will be lovers of self, lovers of men, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, and verse 3, and malicious gossips. Diabolos. Again, this is the word for the devil because the devil is a slanderer. And he was a slanderer from the beginning. So when you slander someone, when you gossip about them, you are speaking the devil's language. And you are a little devil. You little devil. But that's in a bad way. <laughs> um, he can tempt us to sin, to speak against God's will. He can tempt us to lie. He can tempt us to slander others. And lastly on the list, he tempts us to use our, um, our anger to sin against others. He tempts us to use our anger to sin against others. Anger is an emotion. Anger is not a sin. But it's really hard to control your anger so it doesn't become sin. It's kind of like nuclear power. Nuclear power can be used for good things and it can be used for very bad things. It's very hard to control. So look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He's talking in the context of marriage here. Well, maybe not marriage, but he's talking about your anger. Um, we usually apply it to marriage. <laughs> uh, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. So it shows you can be angry and not sin. And Jesus got angry and he can't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So if you're angry, you know, deal with it. Don't let it get down. And I guess the context, I heard this in application where people say, well, um, when my wife and I are angry at each other, um, we just stay up and fight, you know, because you're not supposed to go to bed angry, you know, <laughs> so just stay up and fight, you know. I don't know if that's the right answer, but he says, and do not give the devil an opportunity, so what he's saying here, if you don't deal with your anger immediately or quickly, devil is going to take an opportunity to turn that anger in a way that is sinful, you got to deal with it, so you can be angry over an issue, let's say abortion, you're angry about abortion, well, you can turn that anger into something useful and helpful and help women who are caught in crisis pregnancies and counsel them, uh, help with adoptions. You can maybe protest or whatever you want to do. Or you can take that anger and do it in a negative thing, and you could bomb a clinic and do something like that. You know, you're angry. One turns it into something that's constructive. The other turns it into something that's destructive. 
and one would be sin, the other is not. Uh, here's a note at the end of your page there on page 79. First, God oversees Satan's temptations. So remember that, even though Satan may tempt you, he has to get God's permission, as we see in the book of Job and also in Luke 22. And we cannot be tempted beyond what we can resist in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us. That's worth looking at. So let's look at that, 1 Corinthians 10.13. When the Satan is tempting you, you can resist that temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So we all have the same temptations. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So he is screening the temptations and won't let you be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So notice the escape has to do with enduring it. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean your escape is that the temptation disappears. It means you get through the temptation and you escape it. And how do you do it? Well, obviously not in your own power, but God is faithful to give you the power to resist those temptations. Okay, let's look at the, the next page. I better keep moving here. <laughs> so, um, we saw what Satan can do, and we saw all the different temptations he could do, and that was just number one. Something also that Satan can do, number two, he can destroy our bodies through sin. He can destroy our bodies through sin, especially fornication. And the reference 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 is the one we already looked at with a young man caught in incestuous sin and his body's being delivered over to Satan, and, uh, but his soul is saved. So he can destroy our bodies through sin. Sin destroys our bodies. Number three, he can deceive us. He can deceive us. And in 1 Timothy 2.14, the example, of course, is Eve was deceived. Now, that doesn't mean women are more easily deceived. It just means in that particular instance, she was the one deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. They both did the devil's bidding. But he can deceive us. And so we need to know God's word and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to know the truth so we can't be deceived. Number four, he can, I put it this way, annoy us, annoy us. Uh, Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 talks about his thorn in the flesh. And apparently it was really annoying to him. He kept asking God to remove it. We don't know what it is. Some people surmise it was a physical illness. Others say it wasn't physical. It was something else. Um, seems to make sense. It's thorn in the flesh. Seems to make sense. It was something physical that he had. Um, some people guess it might have been his eyesight because we know his eyesight was going bad. He talks about how the Galatians would have plucked out their eyes for him. Uh, he talks about with what li large letters he writes, so obviously he's not seeing very well. And for someone who likes to write the Word of God and likes to study and likes to read, to lose your eyesight might be a real thorn in the flesh. It's not, doesn't keep you from ministering, but it's a real bugaboo. So maybe that's it. But Satan can annoy us. Uh, number five, he can thwart our plans. Thwart our plans. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle Paul is telling the Thessalonians, hey, I was trying to come visit you more than once, but Satan thwarted our plans. doesn't say how he thwarted the plans, but he got involved in keeping the plans from being fulfilled temporarily, but not permanently. So he throws a monkey wrench in plans. Number six, discredit church leaders. Discredit church leaders. Oh, my goodness. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. 1 Timothy 3, we're giving a list of church leaders. 
and it says in verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So he says here, church leaders can be discredited by the work of the devil, especially if they allow arrogance to get the best of them. And we've unfortunately seen recently um, a couple really well-known church leaders. I won't mention their names, but if you know their names, then you're grieved with me. And anytime I see that, I don't point a finger. I am grieved because I know I'm made of the same stuff, and so are you. So we need to be careful that we realize the devil can discredit us. He can get us out of our arrogance to do things we shouldn't do. And number seven, he can cause spiritual blindness in unbelievers. Unbelievers, that's very important. So it, and this passage explains a lot of what's going on in the world today. Second Corinthians chapter four. It's easy as a Christian sometimes to think that the whole world has gone mad. It's gone insane. How can they be so crazy? How can they not see that if you do A plus B, you're going to get C? How can they not see that? Well, this verse explains it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They've been blinded. So they can't, they can't, as Paul says in the book of Romans, they can't think straight. They've been blinded. That they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So they have spiritual blindness, these unbelievers. They, they don't see the truth. Number eight, Satan can influence the actions of unbelievers. He influences the actions of unbelievers. And the most infamous case is the one of Judas, of course. And Judas, in Luke 22, we see how he is influenced by the devil himself. Now, keep in mind that the devil can only be one place at a time. He's not omnipresent. He'll only be one place at a time. And at this time, he was in Judas. Luke 22, verse 3. Verse 3 says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted. So Satan entered Judas. Judas was an unbeliever. He didn't lose his salvation, but he sure fooled everybody. And even up until the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the other disciples had no idea that Judas was going to betray Jesus because they're going, well, who's going to do it? And that would seem to indicate that Judas was able to falsify signs and wonders because otherwise the other disciples go, hey, Judas, why don't you raise him from the dead? Or Judas, why don't you uh, heal him? Or Judas, why don't you cast out the demon? Or what? And he goes, nah, you get it, you get it. After all, they start going, wait, Judas, you've never done anything. You know, you just count the money all that. So he must, somehow he fooled all of them. And as we saw, demons can do miracles, so perhaps they did those miracles through Judas, who was indwelt by Satan. Which shows us, I mean, we've had some pretty, really evil people throughout the world. Infamous names. You know, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, you can go on and on, you know. Um, 
Satan could actually have been indwelling these people. I'm going to dwell one person at a time, but he might have indwelt them just like he indwelled Judas. That's a possibility. Um, he's not going to indwell you if you're a believer. So where did Satan come from? Well, he was created without sin. He was created, but he was created without sin. He was created perfectly. And there's a reference in Ezekiel 28 that most conservative evangelical theologians believe this is a reference to Satan because of the way it's written. And Ezekiel 28 starts off in verse 2 of 28 saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, okay, the leader or prince of Tyre. So this is a human ruler over Tyre. But then as he continues, he comes to verse 12 of Ezekiel 28, verse 11 and 12, and he says, again the word of the Lord came to me, saying. So he's already given a word to the human ruler of Tyre. He's called the prince. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So the king of Tyre, we believe, is a reference to Satan, who is over the prince. And if you read the context, it doesn't fit a human being. Thus says the Lord, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So that's not any human being. That's Satan. He was perfect. He was in the, the Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, etc., etc., etc. And it, then it says, all these things was in you. On the day you were created, the end of verse 13, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. So a cherub is a type of angel. And so apparently Satan was of the order of angels called cherub. And as I mentioned last week, I think it was, cherubim is the plural of cherub. Cherubs is not really the plural. The plural is cherubim, and he was a cherub. And verse 17 says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. And so this is probably what Jesus was talking about when he saw, saw Satan uh, falling from heaven like lightning. That this cherub got so wrapped up in his own beauty and who he was. And in Isaiah 14, we see the, the five I wills of Satan, which we'll see in the next point, that he was cast out of heaven. But the point here is that we see that he was, verse 13, he was a created being. But he was created without sin. Number two on your notes there, where did he come from? He was a cherub, an angel of high order. He was a cherub, an angel of high order, and apparently guarded God's throne. So he was an angel. His nature. This is very important. So if you forget everything else we said tonight, which I hope you don't, <laughs> but I want you to remember this. Number one, his nature. He is a created being. He is a created being and therefore is infinitely inferior to God. Inferior to God. Infinitely inferior to God. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omniscient, all-knowing. He's not omnipresent everywhere at the same time. And he's not immutable. Immutable means not unchangeable. Because Satan, number two, because Satan belonged to the order of angels known as cherubim, that's the plural of cherub, and was perhaps their leader, he had, and even still retains in his fallen nature, a great deal of power, though under God's permission. 
So he's powerful, but that power, he has to have God's permission to wield it. Thus he is called, and these are some phrases that you'll hear in the sermon on Sunday or Saturday. Thus he is called the God of this world, small g, and the prince of the power of the air. Satan, some would call Satan the archangel of all the evil angels. Note how even Michael the archangel recognizes Satan's powerful position in Jude 9, which we already looked at. So what was his first sin? And we'll finish up with this tonight, number six and number seven. The first sin to enter the universe was committed by Satan. It was a sin of pride. It was the sin of pride. And again, we have a reference to Satan in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Isaiah 14, verse 11. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. Uh, the Greek word is Hades, and we often call it hell. Um, maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Because of this verse, the pomp and the music of your harps, some people believe that Satan was a worship leader in heaven. He was around God's throne. And there's an indication of that here. And if that's the case, he still uses music today because music is extremely influential. And there is no such thing as an evil note. Okay, when I was growing up back in the 70s, they tried to convince you that there's an evil beat, there's an evil note. You know, notes, notes are like bullets. They're neutral. They're not good or bad. It just depends how you use the bullet. You can use it for good, you can use it for bad. Notes are neither good nor bad. But you can use music and notes for bad. And if you've ever been to a concert, you can see uh, a secular concert in some ways is a counterfeit to a worship service. That people are worshiping, lays in their hands, and, but they might be singing things that are evil and corrupt and nasty and sinful and things like that. They may not be. But we can see how Satan certainly uses music um, today. And then verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven. So this could be the reference when Jesus said, I saw you fall from heaven. O star of the morning. Now star of the morning in the Latin Bible, which we had long before the English Bible, the translation of star of the morning is Lucifer. That's Latin. I don't know Latin, but we can always ask our Latin scholar over there um, after the film stops, if I'm wrong or right. But Lucifer is a Latin for star of the morning. So that's why we call him Lucifer. O star of the morning of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. And here's why. You said in your heart, and now we have the five I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars are reference to the angels. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. The mount of assembly, the place of authority. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And that's the first sin, that Satan wanted to be God. And that's the sin that he tempted Adam and Eve with. You will be like God. And that's the sin that he tempts all of us with. It's a sin of pride that we make ourselves out to be little gods. And so the first sin is a sin of pride. And every sin that you and I commit is committed because of pride. It's our pride that gets in the way and causes us to sin. It's the root of all sin. So what about his defeat and judgment? Well, he loses, friends, and he loses big. 
First, he was defeated at the cross, defeated at the cross. We don't have time to look at Genesis 3.15, but you remember that that's the proto-evangelum, which is the first place the, the gospel is preached and is preached in the context of the fall. And it says to Satan that, that he will crush your head, but you will bite his heel. Well, the, the biting of the heel wasn't fatal, <laughs> wasn't eternal. It's Christ on the, the cross, but he rose from the, from the dead. But Satan was defeated. His head was crushed. He was defeated on the cross. Um, in John 16, 8 to 11, it says, The ruler of this world has been judged. And in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we look at that. He's been rendered powerless. So he's defeated at the cross, but his final judgment hasn't been carried out yet. It's sort of like he's out on probation or on bail. You know, he's been judged. There are limited things he can do. But the final judgment, number two, against Satan will be carried out when Christ returns and casts Satan into the lake of fire into the lake of fire. And Matthew 25, 41 tells us the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it was made for them. It wasn't made for us. But when mankind chose to listen to the devil and fall, the unbeliever now, we're told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, will also be thrown into the lake of fire with his God, small g. Scripture didn't say God, but that's who they've worshipped. They really worship the small God. They will be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and the devil. So we win. We win big if we're believers, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you don't lose it, and we'll see that when we study uh, soteriology. So we don't give glory at all in any way to our enemy. We give it all to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has defeated our enemy and has given us the power to defeat him on a daily basis in our own lives if we choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not believe the liar. And by the way, you can see a lot of lies on the Internet. <laughs> so please be careful. Let's pray. Lord, we want to embrace the truth. And the truth is a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. Lord, show us in our own lives, lives where we have believed lies, Lord, whether it's about our own selves or someone else or the world around us, Lord. Just fill us with your truth. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And thank you that we have you living in us, and greater are you in us than the evil one who's in the world. It's through your powerful, triumphant name we pray, Jesus. Amen.